found myself reading it and seeing the message of the resurrection right there, right there in the middle of Acts chapter 5. And so I thought, you know, I could change things up completely, but that's not who I am. I'm kind of a creature of habit. So we're just going to let this scripture meet us where we're at this morning in Acts chapter 5. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that your scripture, that your word is eternal, and that though we are finite, you desire to speak to us through it. And so, Lord, as we open up your eternal word, Lord, we need you to open up our eyes so that we can see the things that are unseen in this life. Lord, we need to get a glimpse of who you are and what heaven is like and, Lord, what you're calling us to be while we're still here because you haven't taken us out of this place. You've left us here, but you've also sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to empower us to do what you've called us to do. And so, Lord, This morning, as we open up your word, we need your help. We need you to open up our eyes, to remove the blinders, Lord, to make our hearts sensitive to what you're trying to teach each one of us individually. And so, Lord, as I share what you've shown me, Lord, uh, may none of what I say hinder what you're trying to teach every person here. So, Lord, we just open up this time and we ask that you would just have your way with us, Lord. Have your way with this time and, Lord, um, just teach us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his death, but more so, thank you for raising him to newness of life. Thank you for raising him from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was accepted by you and that we can trust in that. So Lord, uh, we just open up your word asking that you would just teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name. So as we find ourselves in Acts chapter 5 this morning, we'll remember from last week, if you were here with us, and if not, I'm going to give a brief synopsis. Basically, we we saw two people that were in the church that apparently had wanted to come to church and give an offering, but they were hypocrites. They showed up and they gave a certain amount, but they told them that that was the the full amount of what they had gotten from selling their home or their, their property. They sold their property, and there were many people at that time selling their property, and they desired to bless others, and so they would sell their property. They would take the the money that they got from it, and they would give it to the apostles, and the apostles would distribute it to anyone who had need. Now, that's a wonderful thing, right? But when some of the individuals that were there saw that those that were giving were kind of probably being treated a little bit better, or maybe they were getting some, they were being noticed. Hey, look at that guy. He spiritually just gave a bunch of money. So there was another group. There was a couple of people by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And they showed up and they said, you know what? We want to be noticed too. And so we're going to take our property, we're going to sell it, and we're to give, going to give the proceeds to the Lord. But we're not going to give it all. We're going to, we're going to say that we're giving it all, but we're only going to, we're going to hold back some for ourselves and we're going to give the rest to God. Well, they had this misconception. They thought that if they gave uh, just a portion of it, that no one would know the difference. Now, their sin wasn't that they only gave a small portion. Peter asked them, he said, you know, when you had that property, was it not yours? And after you sold it, was not the money that you gained from selling it, wasn't that yours? So their sin wasn't that they didn't give it all. Their sin was that they said they were giving it all, but they weren't really. God calls us each to give specific things to him. But he doesn't call us all to to sell our property and give it all. What he's saying is, be faithful with what I've given you. And if I ask you to give something, please give it all. And so we need to be careful that we 
show up and we say, Lord, I'm, I'm giving you this area of my life and not being a hypocrite about it, but saying, this is all I can give at this time. And you know what? He's pleased in that. He sees that each one of us have spots where we're not ready yet. And he's patient with us. But at the same time, when you realize that, you know, God's called you to do something, don't give hypocritically. Don't say you're giving all, but not really. Be real about it. God knows anyway. Hebrews 4.13 says that God knows all and all things that we think are naked before his eyes. And so we must give an account to him. Don't worry about pleasing anybody else. So as we see that took place, I want to point out something that's happened in the early church. Number one, there's been opposition. As God has started this work, he's empowered his people by filling them with his Holy Spirit. They're going out to do what he commanded. He said, go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To make a disciple means to make somebody that's disciplined. Doesn't mean to make converts. Doesn't mean to just get people saved and then leave them hanging. But it means to to dwell with them, encourage them, build them up, and equip them to do what Jesus has told them to do. Because after that, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, equipping them or teaching them the things that I have commanded you. So you've heard from Jesus. Now go and tell other people what he's taught you. And so that's all disciples are called to do. Spend time with Jesus, get to know him, and, and then go and share what he's shown you. Now, we don't all have everything in the Bible down pat, do we? He's not saying share everything in the Bible. He's saying share everything with people that you've come to understand. Whatever you get a grasp of, go and share it. Let me encourage you because each week I get up here to teach this thing. The problem is is that I'm still human and I'm still working out what I've learned from Jesus. So I'm not perfect. And don't expect me to be. I, I've, I, just over the last couple of weeks, I started expecting myself to just get it all the time. And the Lord's gracious. He's not saying to get it all the time. He's saying, whatever you do get, be obedient to that. And then I'll teach you the next thing. But it's steps. It's walking. Oh, there's a spider. Boop. I don't like spiders. Okay. So anyway, God's just calling us to be obedient to the thing that we're at right now. So let me encourage you, if you ever feel overwhelmed, like you should have it all down, realize that God knows that you're you're dust, he's made you from that, and then he's just calling you to do what he's shown you today. But also notice that he wants us to learn something new every day. He wants us to spend time in his presence so we can, you know, whether you read a chapter or 10 chapters or just three verses, that you can take something away and that you can be changed by it. Let God apply it to your life. We need that. We need to learn from him. So what happens is, as they're continuing, something's happening. People are being impacted by the work that they're doing. And we saw that last week. It says that uh, through the hands of the apostles, verse 12, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So because of this opposition outside of the church, they've had persecution from the leaders of, the, uh, of Judaism, those that didn't believe Jesus was the Savior, that he was the Messiah. They're opposing the apostles because they were trying to get rid of Jesus in the first place. So anybody that would come along and teach in his name and continue to teach the things that he was teaching, 
They didn't like it. So they tried to silence them. They said, don't, don't teach in this name anymore. Don't speak about Jesus. Okay? So opposition comes from the outside. When we want to be obedient to the Lord, there are going to be people come along and tell us, hey, you need to be quiet. This thing that you're teaching is offensive. Stop it. And that's going to happen. So, but then opposition doesn't just come from the outside, but it also comes from the inside, inside the church. You see Ananias and Sapphira, they're corrupt in their thinking. They've decided they're going to lie to God about what they're giving. And so that's going to cause a big distraction, right? So what God does is he takes those two, I don't understand why, but he completely gets rid of them. He says, why have you decided to lie to the Holy Spirit? And they're snuffed out right there. They die. Now that's a scary thing, right? We go, well, does God still do that? Well, I'm thankful. And I mentioned last week, I'm so thankful that God doesn't do that to me today because if I sing a song like I Surrender All, one of the old hymns that many Christians sing all over the country, if I sing that song and I don't really mean it, and I'm Ananias and Sapphira, I'm done. Can you imagine? If we're singing that song and our hearts aren't really fully surrendered to the Lord, all of a sudden people just start dropping like flies. It wouldn't be good, right? But God wants us to see this example and realize that he, while he is gracious, he is still holy. He is still perfect. And he desires for us to just be honest with him. We don't have to lie to him. He knows all our junk anyway. The stuff we've confessed to him and the stuff that we haven't. So we may as well just be honest about it. And the refreshing thing is, is that when, we're, when, we're, uh, when we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just in cleansing us and forgiving us of all unrighteousness. He takes that thing that we haven't given to him and we say, Lord, I'm really having trouble with this thing. I can't give it to you. I'm not there yet. And he says, I'll help you. I'll empower you to do that. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. Because if not for that kind of grace, we wouldn't be able to receive anything from him. We wouldn't be able to receive forgiveness. And so here's what, how it goes. Verse 13 says, or 14 says, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick into the streets and they laid them on the beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on them. So from this purity, from God purging this sin out of the church, what happens is they're given power. They become powerful witnesses, but powerful instruments that God's going to use because it says there that believers were increasingly added to the Lord. It doesn't say that believers were increasingly added in multitudes to the Baptist church or to the Pentecostal church or to Arcadia Valley Chapel or to church in general. What it says there is believers were increasingly added to the Lord. If you haven't, if, you, if God's given you the grace to be able to underline stuff in your Bible, I do that. If that's not your thing, that's cool. But I underline that phrase, added to the Lord, because I don't know about you guys, but I would much rather God add people to my thing. And sometimes he sees fit to use us to speak into someone's life and they might end up going down to the, to the church down the street. But that's okay because it's not about our kingdom. It's not about Arcadia Valley Chapel. It's not about the First Baptist Church. It's just that people would be added, believers, trusting in the blood of Jesus for their salvation and then being equipped and encouraged to keep going because salvation is just the beginning. He wants to sanctify us. He wants to cleanse us. He wants us to grow. He doesn't want to leave us infants, but he wants us to teach us. He wants to teach us the new, you know, the, the rest of the scriptures too, but it's a process. 
So it says that believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, so that they brought the sick into the streets, laid them on the beds and couches, that at least one shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Now, was there anything special about Peter's shadow? Anything special? No. What happened is you have these people trusting in Jesus and they go, those guys know Jesus. I need to be around them. Something around about them is going to change me. And so they use this shadow of Peter as just as he's walking by because he can't talk to everybody. They say, you know, if I would just be able to be in Peter's shadow, perhaps God would heal me. That's a touch point for them. It's not that they trust in his shadow. It's just that's how they get close to the Lord. Some people have that with church. If I just go to church, then I'll feel better about it. God will be able to do something in my life. Is there anything special about this building or about even me or these microphones? or the? No, it's, it's about Jesus working in us and through us. And so we need to know that you know, it's not about Peter's shadow. Later we'll see in, in the book of Acts that they're actually being healed by touching the sweatbands of the apostles. Now, it says that they were touching rags, and we hear about these ministries on TV all the time. And these, these rags, they'll mail you a prayer cloth, and then you can touch that cloth, and it'll cleanse you. I heard of one uh, ministry in particular where they took these uh, shower caps, and they would bless them. And the shower cap would come to you, and, you'd, and they're always wanting money, is the idea. They're saying, if you send a seed gift to our ministry, and they will, we will bless you, we'll pray for you, we'll lay hands on you. But since they can't be where you're at, they'll send you a shower cap with a handprint on it, and that's the touch point. Now, I'm not saying that that is a good ministry, because if they're not spending time with you individually, if they're not investing in you, they're just asking for money, God never says, hey, give me money and I will bless you. Never. What he says is, come to me in faith, trust in Jesus, and pray. And the the prayer of faith will raise you up. So, um, God is in the ministry of healing still today. And I know people that have been healed by prayer. I, uh, a young lady by the name of Cindy that I get to work with now, she had, they, they found out that she had cancer. And we prayed for her. And next thing you know, uh, my pastor called her one day and was like, so how did your doctor appointment go? And she goes, I went to the doctor appointment. They did this scan and it's gone. There's no, there's no cancer. And God's, God's in the ministry of doing that kind of healing. Now, sometimes he chooses not to heal. But the reality is, it's, it's because of his plan. He can use our affirmities to bring himself glory. So, verse 16, Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Sounds like the ministry of Jesus. Everywhere he went, when sick people were brought to him, he would act, he would show them mercy, and he would heal them. And God's in that ministry, and so... We see all this taking place, and then we kind of go into another section where some people get a little aggravated by the ministry that's going on through the apostles. So verse 17 says, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, it's a little kind of a group of the Jewish leaders, Um, they were called the Sadducees, they were filled with indignation, and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Okay, so before we go too far, I want to point out that it says that they rose up and they, they were filled with indignation. Now, I looked up the word because I, I don't know about you guys, but I didn't know what that word meant. So I looked up, what does it mean to be indignant? Well, this particular Greek word means 
jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. So everything that we read after this is a result of them being jealous of the apostles. Now I find this interesting because the Sadducees did not believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection of, from the dead. They didn't believe in angels. And they didn't believe in any miraculous works. They were all about blessings here. They weren't about heavenly blessings. They weren't about miraculous things happening. And so for them to be jealous of the apostles here seems to me a bit ironic. They were jealous of something they didn't even believe could happen. But they were witnessing it. And they hardened their hearts. They said, this, this Jesus, the one who they say is empowering them, it can't be true. And so they rose up, it says in verse uh, 18, and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, before I move on, I want to point out, I just said to you, the Sadducees didn't believe in the miraculous. So for God to choose to use an angel to let these men out of prison would completely baffle them, you know, because they don't believe in angels. But just because you don't believe something exists doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because you don't believe that God exists doesn't make him cease to exist, does it? Just because these men didn't believe in the power of the miraculous and angels doesn't mean that God can't use angels. We oftentimes try to put God in a box as if our box can contain him. But these men were not able to contain the power of God. And so they... The angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, we find out in the next verse they went to the temple. But before we go there, I want us to turn really quickly to Matthew chapter 27. Jesus knew how to set captives free because he himself was made captive in a in a fleshly body. He himself was captive in a tomb. He himself had been in a tomb that was guarded heavily by guards, and yet he was set free. So in Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, Jesus has already been crucified. He's been laid in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus didn't own anything. He didn't have his own burial plot. But this man by the name of Joseph, who was a Pharisee, who was kind of a closet believer in Jesus, he gave this tomb so that Jesus could use it. Now, many people would assume that he gave it to him because he knew he could still use it because Jesus wasn't going to stay dead long. I don't know. I don't really think that was the case. I think that he recognized who Jesus was, and so he wanted to honor him just by giving him something simple, a plot of ground to have a, a, a a tomb. So verse 62 in Matthew chapter 27 says, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. So remember, he said he was going to rise. So because of that, verse 64, Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples Come by night and steal him away, and then teach the people he's risen from the dead. See, they, they knew what he preached, that he was going to rise from the dead. And since they didn't believe it was going to take place, they thought he's going to do it some other way. His plan was, you see, 
He was going to have himself put to death and then teach his disciples to let him free so that people would believe a lie. That makes total sense, right? But that's what they thought. They thought they're going to make this happen one way or another, even if he's not able to raise from the dead miraculously. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. (laughs) I find that interesting. I wonder if Pilate was like, you can try and secure it, but I don't know, this guy seems pretty legit. Now Pilate never really says, it never says in scripture that Pilate turned to Jesus, but oftentimes wonder if he was like, there's something special about this guy. So verse 66, they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. But then chapter 28 says, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door, and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, and became like dead men. I don't know if they actually died, or if they just passed out because they were completely overwhelmed. But, see, I didn't do a word study. I don't know what that word dead there means. It might mean that they looked like they were dead, like they passed out, or it might mean that they just died. I don't know. That's not my point. Um, But the angel answered, verse 5, and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. It makes sense that you're here because you saw him put to death. Verse 6, he is not here. For he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to bring his disciples word. I love that. Because it's so parallel with what we're reading today in the book of Acts. These men have been sprung miraculously from jail. They were innocent. They hadn't done anything wrong. They hadn't done anything worthy of being put in jail. What they did was they shared words of life and of truth and of love with these people that were listening in the temple. So verse 21 of Acts chapter 5, when they heard that, they were remember he just told them, the angel said, go stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. So verse 21, when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and they taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. I want to point something out here because they're sending to the prison saying, okay, go to the prison, get these guys back out of jail. We want to talk to them. They don't know that they're not going to find anybody there. So when they find out, verse 22, when the officers came and did not find them in prison, they returned and reported saying, indeed, indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So we know here why they didn't find anybody inside. We have the rest of the scripture where it says that they were set free by the angel, right? Verse 24, notice the reaction of the high priest here. Verse 24, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, They wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison, they're in the temple and they're teaching the people. You told them to stay out of the temple, put them in jail. They're back. What are you going to do about it? 
So then the captain went with the officers. They were supposed to get him from the prison. They weren't there. So the captain went with the officers, brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. They, the people liked the apostles. They were in there teaching about Jesus. No one was upset about it. So they had to go and get them gently, lest the crowd that was surrounded around them listening to them would stone them to death. This is a pretty good deal. Then, the, uh, then verse 27, When they had brought them and set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. I find this interesting what they say here because they don't say, how do you get out of jail? They don't ask that. They don't even care. Didn't we tell you to be quiet about this man, Jesus? What are you doing back in the temple? They don't ever ask the question, how did you get back to the temple? How'd you get out of jail? We had guards. You were in our prison. They don't ask that. What they say is, why are you still teaching in this name? That, I believe, is the difference between those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. Those who mock Him. Those who try to shut Him down. They are hardened to the fact that God is able to resurrect, to raise from the dead. But those who believe, they showed up at the temple. The angel revealed it to them that He wasn't there, that He'd been risen. That He'd been set free. So... In what they said, this is the testimony of the apostles concerning, excuse me, the testimony about the apostles, but given by the enemies of Jesus and the enemies of the apostles. So verse 28, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And then they said, and look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, what they're saying there is, look, the testimony that we have about you apostles is that you have gone and you've spread your teaching, which we believe is wrong, and you've touched all of Jerusalem. Everybody's talking about Jesus. Now, they meant it as a kind of a slander. See, you need to be put in jail. We need to stop you from teaching. But to the apostles, this was what they were commanded to do. Go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and then to the outer reaches, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. So for them to say, hey, you've taught everybody in Jerusalem this teaching about Jesus. For them, it was supposed to be slander, but for them, it was a commendation. They're saying, you're screwing up. You're teaching about Jesus. And what they're hearing is, hey, you're being faithful. God's using you. You've already reached the whole city of Jerusalem. How cool would it be if our enemies one day, if we have any, would come up to us and say, we're aggravated with you. You've taught everybody in the whole Arcadia Valley about Jesus and people are coming to believe in him. What's your deal? Why do you keep messing with us? That would be a pretty wonderful testimony to God using us in a mighty way. May that be something that happens in our lifetime. Because do you know what would change if the teaching of Jesus were spread all out through our valley? Well, it would affect our towns. It would affect our schools. It would affect things like teen pregnancy. It would affect things that, uh, like drugs and alcohol abuse and uh, spousal abuse. It would affect everything that goes on behind the scenes that we read about in the paper and grieve us. 
We want to change things. We want to get rid of things like abortion. But we can't get rid of those unless Jesus is the reason for it. Because if we make the changes based on our soapbox or our theory or our morals, then it won't make a change that will last beyond our generation. All it will change is people's ideas for now. It won't last. And so we need Jesus to be the one that's using us to speak words. Because remember earlier, we were praying and I said, Lord, your word is eternal. And God's word is eternal. And so when he speaks it forth through you and I, or through his word, or through worship, or whatever it might be, those words have an eternal impact. Our words, our ideas, the things that we have to say, they only have a temporary impact. But God's word lasts forever. So, verse 29, or excuse me, before I start that, he says there, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now what he's saying is, you're intending to blame us for the death of Jesus. But it's not our fault. But I find that interesting because if you turn, and i got to find the reference in here because I wrote it down because I would forget it. Go back to Matthew chapter 27 one more time. Should have left a little bookmark there. He says, you intend to bring this, the guilt of this man's death on us. But we're not guilty of it. Why are, you, why are you trying to make us guilty? But it's interesting to me because when Jesus was getting ready to be crucified, they had a little bit different of an idea about whether they were guilty of the blood of Jesus. Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. It says, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, Not one word. So the governor was blown away. He marveled greatly. He's like, Don't you see that they're... they're defend yourself. Pilate was completely blown away that Jesus wouldn't defend himself. So verse 15 says, Now at the feast... The governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. We just read that today because they were jealous. Their motive was really the same thing. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate, that is, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now that's a whole other story, but apparently Pilate's wife was having nightmares, and, and she knew something bad was going to happen with Jesus, and she didn't want her husband to be involved in, in the judgment on Jesus. But the chief priests, verse 20, and elders persuaded the multitudes that should ask for Barabbas, excuse me, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. They released the murderer instead of the just man. And Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said to him, everyone that was gathered there, they all said, let him be crucified. That's not the point I want to make, though. Verse 23, then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? 
But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Now, number one, Pilate is not innocent of the blood of Jesus because he washed his hands. You cannot wash your hands and act like it didn't happen. You can't stand by and say, I'm innocent and not do anything. We can't be neutral. There's no neutral in this life. Either you're for him or you're against him. But Pilate didn't want the consequences of standing with Jesus. He just wanted his hands washed of it. But then notice verse 25. All the people answered Pilate and said, His blood be on us and on our children. In other words, we don't care what you got to do. We'll take the guilt. We'll take it because we will be guilty of his blood because we just want him gone. So then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So today in our passage, he's saying, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But in Matthew chapter 27, they said, his blood be upon us. Make us guilty. We don't care. So all of a sudden their story changes when all of a sudden it's pointed back at them again. Hey, you killed him. You were there. Now I always ask this question because it's easy to get in the debate. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? But the real answer, and this is how I always answer people because I believe it to be true. Who killed Jesus? Me. I killed Jesus. And if you ever have that question of who killed Jesus... Realize that we're all guilty of the blood of Jesus because his life was put up in place of us so that we could have forgiveness of sins, cleansing and washing in the water of the word so that we could experience a resurrected life. We could be born again. So, Peter and the other apostles answered verse 29 and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, they shouldn't be surprised at this answer because before they said, don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And they had responded, you judge whether it's good for us to obey God or you. And and so this time they're saying, I know that you told us not to speak in his name anymore, but the same thing is true. We ought to obey God rather than men. Verse 30, and the God of our fathers, he starts to preach, he starts to teach them. It says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. But him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses. We are the ones that he's chosen to use to teach everyone else. We are his witnesses, verse 32, to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is wonderful news because it says there, verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. God raised Jesus. He sent him down to be with us, but he raised him. He raised up Jesus. We murdered him. The bad news, the good news, God raised Jesus to be the savior. The bad news, we murdered him. The good news God raised him. (laughs) God raised him again. We didn't stop God's plan. We actually played into God's plan. Those that were around, Judas even. Judas was used as an instrument of the devil to try and stop the plan of redemption that God started. 
But when we try to stop God's plans, he's able to use even the wrath of man to praise him because what Judas meant for bad, God used for the good. And so he raised him for newness of life, for the repentance to Israel. See, Israel had been given a relationship with God that no other nation had been given. They had been given the testimony. They'd been given the Torah. They'd been given the the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The law. This is how man shall have a good relationship with God. Be righteous in his sight. They have to sacrifice bulls and goats. And that blood that was used, that was spilled out of those sacrifices was then used to put on the ark. And that would symbolically cover their sins for one more year. But Jesus Christ came to be the sacrifice for you and I. So we don't have to do that anymore. I'm so thankful that today at Easter, whatever you guys do for Easter, we don't have to sacrifice an animal and pour blood out and then burn the thing. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. Because I don't know about you guys, but... Cutting up animals is nasty, and it's a lot of work, and then I don't want to eat the meat afterwards because I get a little bit, you know, i got to wait a couple days before I really want to eat that deer meat, you know? So praise the Lord that we no longer have to approach God based on our works or based on anything that we're going to do, but it's by faith. Let me point out to you in the Old Testament, it was by faith because I don't know about you guys, to me it sounds a little ridiculous to slay an animal and be forgiven of my sins. Even then they were doing it by faith. But we no longer have to do that. God himself provided a sacrifice so that you and I, all we have to do is say, Lord, I see that sacrifice and I don't get why you would send your only son to die for me, but I receive it. I need salvation. I need forgiveness because I'm a sinner. And when we humble ourselves, we exalt God. That's when our salvation comes. So these men, all they had to do was see that they, this witness, this testimony was true, receive it, humble themselves and say, we are sinners. And they could have received the same forgiveness. But when you don't receive the forgiveness of God and you're against His plan of salvation, what it makes you is an enemy of God. We're at war with God still without Jesus. And so these men, because they weren't for Jesus, they were against Him and they tried to shut up anybody that would testify of any different. And so they tried to shut down the witness and the testimony. But what I want to point out is that every time there's opposition, opposition from the outside, opposition from the inside, like Ananias and Sapphira causing corruption in the church, every time that that happens in the book of Acts, what we'll see is that it doesn't stop the testimony of God. As a matter of fact, what it helps do is it actually spreads the word further because more people hear about it because of the opposition. Because of the purity that was brought by Ananias and Sapphira, they found out that God was real, that he was still active, and that he couldn't be lied to. And next week, as we study, we're going to look at the fact that sometimes we start with opposition from the outside, opposition from the inside, but then a lot of opposition, and I believe that we see a lot of it in the United States and in the church and in our culture, we see it in division and in distractions inside of the church. We're going to see what happens when some people start feeling like they're being treated favorable over others and so they start to complain. And the enemy starts to use division within the church to cause all the resources of the church to be spent inside the walls rather than going out and sharing the gospel with people. So Lord, uh, we thank you so much that though the opposition happens, 
that you are greater than the opposition. We thank you that when you call your servants to go and share the good news, that even when they get put in prison, sometimes you release them so that people will ask, how did you get out of prison? And sometimes you leave them in there. There are many people today that are saved and in jail and third world countries and in countries where the gospel is not uh, allowed to be preached. And you're using them in those prisons to preach the same good news to the captives. And so Lord, thank you that your desire is to shed the good news, to spread it through us, though we are imperfect. And then when we get ourselves into jail, you can set ourselves free. So Lord, uh, help help us to realize what we've been given. Help us to realize that it um, truly is a miraculous thing for you to raise Jesus from the dead. But help us to realize also that it's that power that raised him from the dead that's been given to us to be witnesses, to testify to what you're doing today in our lives. And Lord, uh, thank you that you're willing to work with imperfect vessels. Lord, thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Thank you uh, for new life. Thank you for, so we look out the window even, that we see plants that looked like they were dead all winter. You've started sending the sap out and they're budding. There's going to be fruit on the trees. Lord, thank you for spring being a perfect picture of new life and resurrection. Please, Lord, um, resurrect our lives. Sanctify us. Make us pure. Help us to make the, the steps and the decisions that glorify you. Not because we have to, but because... You saw it worthy of giving your life for us. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice without which we couldn't have a new life. And Lord, I pray that as we sing this last song that you would just be blessed by the first fruit of our lips. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.